0: Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarron, and I'm excited to bring you today's episode with Craig Carnahan. With he's an excellent choral composer, and he's also the Vice President of Programs at the American Composers Forum. So he shares some great advice about making a career out of your composing, from grant writing tips to talking with performers to get your music played. Lots of good stuff coming up. If you're new to this show, I invite you to go to ComposerQuest.com, where you can find all the other interviews and download or stream them for free. You can also find ComposerQuest on iTunes, on Stitcher, and you can stay updated by following ComposerQuest on Twitter or Facebook. Last night, I ended up going to an interesting movie with my brother and a friend of ours, we saw Her. Maybe you've heard of it. It's where Joaquin Phoenix falls in love with his operating system. It was pretty well written, and there are some fun musical moments in it. The operating system, called Samantha, starts composing beautiful piano music, and she's also able to improvise some indie song lyrics to a ukulele song that Joaquin Phoenix is playing. So I know it's a sign of a good movie when I, my brain starts working on it as I sleep, I ended up waking up in the middle of the night and I was dreaming that I was interviewing someone and halfway through I thought, why don't I just let my computer ask all the questions? It would be so much easier that way. I can't really remember if it went well, but I think the moral of this story is that in 10 to 20 years, if you're still listening to Composer Quest, I'll probably be obsolete. So enjoy my presence while you can. Now, after that long tangent... Why don't we get to my talk with Craig Carnahan? Craig, thanks for being here. Yeah. Maybe you could introduce yourself for people who don't
1: know you. Sure. My name is Craig Carnahan, and um, I moved to Minneapolis in 1980 to go to the University of Minnesota in the master's program in composition. I studied with Dominic Argento and Paul Fettler, And um, I came here mainly because I I really wanted to concentrate on writing choral and vocal music, and Dominic was about as good as it gets in the country for his ability to to set text and and teach. So it was a great experience. Um, That was early days of what was then the Minnesota Composers Forum, back in the days when it really was a forum, (laughs) and we could get Mm -hmm. together in people's living rooms and and sit and talk. So I got involved with that early on, and... um, so have have lived here, and and um, I've not um, ever made my living solely as a composer. But I've maintained a pretty active composition schedule over all of these years. And then about seven years ago, I was asked if I was interested in, in working for what is now the American Composers Forum on staff as the vice president of programs, and that's still my day job. <laughs> so yeah. that's cool. Yeah.
0: What have you learned over the years of being with the? American Composers Forum and when it started out as the Minnesota Composers mm-hmm.
1: Forum. You know, it was interesting because back in 1980 I had never said the words I am a composer. I'd never met a composer, I'd never been in a room with a composer. I you know, I really thought they were all a bunch of dead white guys from Germany, you know. <laughs> but um just being in, you know, around other people who were doing what I was doing was such an amazing eye-opening experience. Everybody was there to create new sounds. And just being in that community, the value of that is the biggest, probably the biggest lesson. And, um, you know, it, it was my experience, and we hear this a lot from members and from, from other composers. You know, I got a terrific education at the U of M in all of the academic Pursuits necessary to become a composer, so harmony and ear training and and orchestration and you know theory and counterpoint and all that kind of stuff. But we spent very little time talking about what it takes to maintain and manage a career once you've graduated. How do you become a professional composer in this world? And so I think that is one of the main reasons the forum was founded um, to help give composers those tools.
0: Well that kind of brings me to one of my biggest questions for you, Mm -hmm. which is one I get from my listeners too, is what does it take to be a composer as your career? A composer of concert music, for example. Is that possible to do?
1: Absolutely, yeah, and there are lots of examples in the Twin Cities um, as well as throughout the country. No two examples are alike, but... We use the word entrepreneurial a lot nowadays with regard to composers and their careers. You know, and there are, I mean, the tools we have to be successful are unprecedented nowadays to create music, to disseminate music, to, you know, everything you need. And so it's it's just a matter of really being up on all of the options, everything that's out there to help you. And, you know, there are lots of models. There are certainly people who do manage a career simply as an independent composer, and live off commissions and royalties and probably some grants and that kind of thing. And so that's very viable, and there are people in the Twin Cities who do that. Um, There are folks who combine their own sort of independent composition time with maybe some teaching, whether that's teaching at a school, composition at a school, or having some private students. There are folks who combine, again, their independent time as a composer doing their own commissions and things with working in theater, There are a number of theaters in town who, you know, employ composers. Um, So that's another option. You know, there are lots of different options out there, you know, to sort of create your own career that suits yourself. Obviously, it takes talent and ability, you know. It also takes, you know, some business acumen. You've got to be okay with the fact that part of your life is going to be spent on accounts payables and accounts receivables and tax issues and all the kinds of accountant stuff, it's surprising. It's not all going to be 100% of your time writing and creating music. You run a business, and you've got to be savvy about that. But as I say, I don't think there's ever been a time in history where there are more tools available to help us succeed. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's absolutely possible. Mm
0: -hmm. Another piece of the puzzle... I think, for composers is getting grant money. Mm-hmm. What tips do you have on writing grants?
1: Some folks, the, the thought of applying for anything, whether it's a grant or entering a competition or anything, is just a horrible concept. And it's something that some people just absolutely run from and are almost angry that that's part of the process. You know, So it's not for everybody. Yeah. But um, again, it's one of the tools in the tool belt. You know, it's, it's important to just put your toe in the water and do it. And the first time you apply for something, it really is time-consuming because you really do have to create everything from scratch. But once you've got some of the basic material that is probably going to be requested in a lot of grants that you're going to look at, a work list, you know, a list of the repertoire of what, you know, of your work, you know, basic bio or a, a Vita, that kind of thing. Once you've put the work into that, you don't have to recreate that each time once you've thought about sort of an artist statement and articulated what it means to you to be a creative artist then it becomes less time consuming each time because you've got that kind of stuff in the bank you know mm-hmm. and you resubmit it and you tweak it and change it obviously and my advice always to anybody who applies, for, especially at the Composers Forum, we are very open to talking to applicants before the process and after the process, and both are equally important. Call beforehand. You know, there are lots of questions you can ask that really are viable And are really going to help give you sort of information about the process and what your odds are. And, you know, our McKnight Awards, for instance, we give four and we'll probably have 100 applications. So it's incredibly competitive. But right now, we've got Live Music for Dance Minnesota grants going out. And there are two categories, and we give four awards in each category. And one category, there were 10 applicants. Oh. And so the odds are, you know, obviously much more in your favor. But I think it's really important to call the grant manager in advance and just ask some questions, introduce yourself, ask some questions. And you know, obviously, you don't want to ask anything that's in the guidelines, you know, yeah. but there are tons of things you can ask that really help you along with the process. And, um, and then after the awards are announced, I think it's always really smart, again, to call back and say, can I get feedback on my application? You know, We do that for every grant that we manage, every grant program. The panelists give us written critiques of each proposal. And then somebody from the forum sits in on the panel sessions and transcribes comments mm. on every single application. And you know, we don't say, you know, Craig Carnahan said this about your application, yeah. you know, kind of thing. It's done anonymously, but it's, you know, extremely educational yeah. to get that feedback. And whether you win the grant or not, it's really smart to bookend, you know, yeah. call before and after.
0: Yeah. Going back to the, Artist statement. Because I think that is the one of the hardest parts. I've worked on my artist statement a little bit, but sometimes it's hard to narrow it down if you write a lot of different styles.
1: It's very intimidating to sit down and try to articulate why we do what we do. And I tell folks, often that's your first chance to introduce you and your music to the panel before they ever listen to your work samples. They read that. And if it's something that really speaks from your heart, has passion in it, um, isn't just sort of an academic exercise kind of thing, and nothing—not that, that there's anything wrong with that—but I just think it's something that really engages, that lets them know the personality behind the applicant, and talks about why you do what you do and why you have to do what you—you know—what we have to do. And I'm a real advocate for giving friends, you know, drafts of your proposal and, and getting feedback. And saying, "Here's really what I wanted to convey with this." Does it come across to you? You know, because we're so close to our words, sometimes it's it's hard to know.
0: Can you remember some very bad examples of grants
1: that came to you? Oh, sure. You know, um, the worst examples are often the ones where there's just it was started at the last minute, and then others where clearly the applicant didn't read the guidelines and is proposing something that might be incredibly valid. For another grant, Mm -hmm. but just is not a fit Mm -hmm. for what the funder, you know, intends the grants to go for. I think that one of the great learning tools is to volunteer to be on panels. You know, the Metropolitan Regional Arts Council is always looking for good panelists. Um, The State Arts Board is looking for good panelists, Compass is.
0: What qualifications do you need to be on those?
1: Um, You know, a working artist, you know, somebody who is out there listening um, has got a fairly cosmopolitan ear, you know, and tastes. Somebody who's articulate, somebody who's fair. But I think that if you volunteer for something like that, the staff would love that in the first place. And then for the panelist, you know, you will automatically get fifty grant proposals to read, and you'll immediately start to see what works and what doesn't. You know, mm-hmm. and it's a lot of work, and it's it's a daunting task, but it's really helpful in your own grant writing.
0: Yeah, well, that's a good idea. Well, maybe we could talk a little bit about your music. Okay. First question for you is, what do you think is your best piece,
1: and why? The piece that's probably been the most successful for me is a choral piece that I wrote, I think, in 2004, actually. And this is this will be a fun story because it kind of ties into the whole application process. It's an acapella choral piece called, Thou shalt know him when he comes, and it's a Christmas piece. And the text is gorgeous. It's an anonymous text, but it talks about the, you don't need choirs of angels and brass fanfares and sky lit up with stars to know that there's this amazing presence on earth. You know, you feel it in your heart, you feel it in the firmament kind of thing. Um, So it's a very quiet take on, on the Christmas story. And um, I wrote it to enter into a competition. Some of the, I mean, like the top choirs in the world were jointly sponsoring this competition and your piece would uh, be performed by all of them. And I mean, it was a kind of thing. And I knew going into it that it was going to be incredibly competitive. But I entered this piece and I didn't get, I didn't win. But a couple of weeks after the announcement was made, one of the panelists contacted me. And it's a guy named Craig Johnson who conducts Conspirare down in Austin, Texas, which is a terrific choir. And he was a panelist and he liked the piece. And he said, would you mind if I perform it? <laughs> you know, no, I wouldn't mind. <laughs> you know? And they ended up performing it a ton, and they recorded it on a commercial CD. He ended up asking, um, he was starting his own choral series with Shermer, and it's the first piece in the series, and so it's been done a lot, and it's generated a lot of other commissions and a lot of other perks because of that.
0: How did you approach writing that?
1: My approach is really text driven from the beginning of the process through the whole thing. For me, the text is the key that unlocks the door for everything. And so I spent a tremendous amount of time looking for texts. And then once I found something and settled on it, you know, then it's about getting it in your head and getting it in your soul and heart and doing all the research you can to, you know, to learn about the text and the poet and the time it was written and why and all that kind of thing. And then, you know, it it really is a process for me then of sitting down and just speaking the text over and over and over again and starting to do rhythmic dictation of how the, the syllables play out, how the lines play out, until I'm pretty confident that I've got at least a rhythmic structure that makes some sense. And then I start putting notes and, and harmonies together with it. But always mindful that the text wins in my, my approach. You know, I, I hope I would never impose my own will on a text and try to make it something that the poet didn't want to make it.
0: When you're setting text to music, do you generally think of all the musical phrases as lining up with the lines in a poem or whatever you're doing
1: or No. Nope. Uh, no, I I kind of pull it apart and I retype or you know rekey texts so that when I speak them, at least in my mind, it makes more sense as spoken word than when I read it um, and where the line breaks fall and things, because that might not be where a sentence would break you know, sure. if you were speaking those words.
0: So you conduct choirs, too. I did. Yeah, I don't at the moment. What do you think you've learned from that as a composer?
1: As I approach music as a composer, I do think about, is what I'm putting on paper going to make it easier for the conductor and the performers to perform without stuff just getting in the way, whether that's sloppy notation whether it's bad voicing, whether it's bad, you know, intervals that just are going to be really difficult to, to learn. And I'm not advocating that we don't write difficult music and that if you need a, an interval that is going to be difficult, but it's really integral to what you're writing, you know, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but just being really smart about that and being aware that that time is so precious, you know, in those choirs. Sometimes, you know, I, I'm on the board of the Singers, uh, Matthew Culleton's group, and I think they have six rehearsals for each concert And so the amount of time in rehearsal is so precious. If somebody's got a question about what did Craig mean in this measure? Or is this really where the forte is supposed to be? You know, those kinds of things. The whole rehearsal drags to a stop and you probably wasted 30 or 40 seconds. But when you multiply that by the 40 people that are sitting there, you know, that's a significant amount of time. So I think the conducting experience made me a better Composer, from a practical standpoint of really wanting to to make sure my music is as clean and as helpful <laughs> as possible,
0: yeah, you yeah, know. well, another question I had for you is about talking with performers to mm-hmm. get your music performed. How do you approach performers, or do they come to you at this point
1: <laughs> that's the number one question. How do composers get their music in front of conductors and performers? And the answer I keep hearing is it's this is still very much a relationship-based career. The earlier you start building relationships, the easier that whole process is and it pays off. And I can't tell you how many times I've talked to some younger composers here in town who've gotten some really amazing commissions and have said, you know, how did you get that? And they say, Oh, you know, I knew that person in grad school. You know, we were friends in grad school. The relationships that you can make then with the conducting students, the performers, other composers, that kind of thing, that's really an important part of this whole process. You know, I keep hearing that the worst thing you can do is just send scores off blindly to people. Most composer or most conductors, I'm sorry, I'll tell you that if they do any kind of new music programming at all, that they have a stack of hundreds of scores that have, you know, have just kind of come in unannounced that are sitting in their office and again, they will say it really is about building a relationship, you know, and a composer who comes to their concerts several times and, and introduces themselves and starts to build some name recognition, some visibility, and some credibility. You know, this I'm, I'm somebody who's really interested in what you're doing, and I'm here listening to your sound. I'm looking at the kind of repertoire that you like and that you program. Eventually, then you can say, you know, I've got some music that I think you might be interested in and you're not just an absolute unknown entity you know you're somebody yeah. who they know
0: so. yeah. and if you're trying to get to the national level is it a requirement that you get known locally first just in person or i mean
1: well, you have just... to start somewhere you know and i'm sure that there are certain folks who've got the talent that you know right out of the gates they might enter a national competition or something and and win it and sort of get that instant credibility and instant name recognition but i think starting locally you know especially in a in a market like this where the performing opportunities are so rich and so talented you know and then building on that um, mm-hmm. would certainly be a way to go that i would recommend people follow mm-hmm.
0: and if there are people who live out in cities where there's no orchestra or band they can at least Get their music maybe performed at schools mm-hmm.
1: and schools, yeah. school orchestras, mm-hmm. school bands. Yep. And there are there are an amazing number of really fine regional orchestras. You know, they're not the size budget of the Minnesota Orchestra or the Saint Paul Chamber Orchestra, mm-hmm. but my parents live in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and I, I've heard the South Dakota Symphony, and they're terrific. And they're commissioning, and they've got a really great program going and supporting new music. So there are opportunities out there. Um, for choral composers, there's a lot of need for good religious music. Uh, there's always good you know, need for good school music. The band market is huge. The Composers Forum has a series called Band Quest, which is a series we started about 15 years ago, which was started as a result of requests from band directors at the middle school level that just said the quality of repertoire was just awful. And can't you please do something to elevate... The level of work. And so we commissioned some of the top composers in the country to write for middle school bands. And uh, they have to do a little residency, and they they adopt a band, and they get to know the kids and get to know what they're capable of doing. Then they write a three- or four-minute piece. So we publish these once a year. And Kevin puts the, you know, just one of Pulitzer, he's got a piece in the series. And, you know, it's it's top-notch people. Every year, around Christmas time, there's a huge band conference in Chicago, and I was just at it. And... I can't tell you how many people come up and say, well, "We want the newest, most recent, you know, the, the hottest, newest piece you've got." And often, I think there's this concept that folks are scared of new music. You know, we want to hear Beethoven and Brahms again. You know, don't make us sit through new music. But these are people who crave it, and there's a huge market out there for really good quality wind ensemble music at all stages, not just middle school. And there are a lot of composers out there, um, especially, and that's been a, a fun thing with BandQuest. A lot of those composers had never ever written a band piece, and all of a sudden they they had a good experience with it, and they they've continued to do it. Cool. Um, Yeah. So you know, I don't think you have to have, you know, Minnesota Orchestra in your backyard to still get your music out there. The opportunities section on the Composers Forum website usually has two hundred or more opportunities for composers, and a lot of those are calls for scores from performing organizations and and performers that are looking for new music.
0: Is there anything else you'd like to plug um for the (laughs) Composers Forum? Composers Forum? Yeah.
1: Well, you know, we just moved into new offices that we're really excited about in the Landmark Center. And um on January 31st, which is a Friday, we're doing an open house which everybody's welcome to attend. I think it runs from 3.30 to 7.30 and um, there'll be live music and refreshments and it's a chance to sort of see the new office space and Innova, our recording label, those guys will be out and I'm guessing there'll probably be some gifts and something else. So, so if you're in the Twin Cities yep. that'll be great? Yep it's 522 Landmark Center we're on the fifth floor and the Landmark Center for is uh, the big castle-like building in downtown St. Paul.
0: So the Innova... Recording label. Mm -hmm. Could you explain that a little bit?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The McKnight Foundation endowed the label, Innova, and it's a unique entity in the business because it's endowed, so the cost to be on the label for the artists is subsidized by the endowment. Artists come to the label with a final recording that's mastered and pretty much ready to go and pay an administrative fee. And then they own 100% of the royalties. They own their own copyright. All distribution is through Noxus USA. They handle digital and physical distribution for us, and they do a phenomenal job. We have designers if folks want, you know, if the artists need somebody to design the cover art. We have a publicist on staff who sends out copies to critics and, and um, you know, folks who review recordings and things. We do about somewhere between 25 and 30 CDs a year we add to the catalog. And I think right now it's like maybe 480 titles total. So it's a big collection of music, and it's a very eclectic mix of stuff. That's really cool.
0: Yeah. How do you select artists for that? Or is there an application process? Um,
1: Philip Blackburn is sort of the artistic director of the label and really runs the artistic aspect of the label. There's other staff that handles other other aspects of the label and helps it keep moving. And um, you know, a lot of it has to do with with recordings that are a good fit, uh, things that we can market well. So it's gotta be something that fits within the library of the label. They're only twenty four or twenty five a year, and so it's it's fairly selective. And the the end of a team kind of sits down and listens to things and makes decisions. So it's not a written application as such as again, it would just be a it would start my recommendation would be to start with a phone call to Philip. Sure. And um sort of say here's what i've got and then let him talk through the process. They have their own website there's a link to, uh, on the composers forum site to the Innova site and there's a lot of information there that people who are potentially interested in being on the label should look at.
0: Sure. Is that limited to american composers or No. Anybody. Cool. Yeah. And american composers forum i mean obviously it's Called American Composers Forum, but is that limited to people who live in the
1: US? It's not. Okay. Our membership fluctuates right around 1,800 usually, and we have members right now in every state, but I think there are 18, they're members in 18 other countries. Oh, cool. Yeah.
0: What do you foresee as the future of
1: the forum? Right now, we're the only membership based composer support organization. There used to be Meet the Composer, the American Music Center and the American Composers Forum. Uh, Meet the Composer and the American Music Center merged a few years ago to create New Music USA, which is a a wonderful organization out of New York that everybody should know about. They have a huge endowment and therefore considerable money to give to support the field. Uh, Folks should know about them. (laughs) uh, Anyway, so at that point, we became the only membership-based organization. And there's a lot to be said about... That feeling of membership, and I think I alluded to that earlier, just being part of that community, you know, and saying I'm part of this body of people. I'm not the only person out there who's trying to create music. I think is a real service, and I think that that's going to continue. I think that what's going to change, you know, we're getting requests for video game composing workshops and film scoring workshops and, you know, those kinds of things where I think 10 or 12 years ago that wouldn't have been on the, on the docket at all.
0: One other thing I was going to ask you about, I noticed you've done a lot of arrangements for Mm -hmm. choir, and I was wondering what the legality of doing arrangements and distributing that is.
1: The words public domain are really important (laughs) for composers. (laughs) You know, it's the same as with text. You know, I can't just go and say, you know, I want to use a Robert Bly text, you know, and I'm going to set this to music because it's under copyright and I have to have permission. And the same is true with a melody. If it's a folk song, if it's, you know, a hymn or whatever, and it was written, you know, quite some time ago, you know, you're free to do that without getting permission. But if it's something that's written more recently, you have to get permission to do it or you can be sued. And the original owner of the copyright can stop you from distributing the piece Mm -hmm. And there are examples that are very painful that I know of that composers have spent a lot of time um, working on a project only to be told by the copyright holder, you don't have permission to do this and you can't, you know, you have to destroy it.
0: So where do you go to get permission for those kind of things? You
1: go to the original copyright holder, which is usually the publisher of, of the work. Publishers almost always have a rights and permissions department. It's not a huge profit center for a lot of them. So like with everybody who's been cutting back in the you know when the economy bottomed out those were some of the first departments that people were let go so where there might have been four or five people managing permission requests there might be one now and so it can take a very very long time to get permission to set a text or to get permission to arrange a tune and you just have to build that into the process and i mean it can take a year hmm. and what i'm finding is that What's happening now is that a lot of the permissions people are used to dealing with academic permissions, where a professor will say, I would like permission to use this Lady Gaga song in my class this semester, and they will grant a one-use permission for that. And so they'll say, you know, I'll say, I want the permission to set this Robert Bly poem, and they'll say, fine, we'll give you permission, it can be performed once. You know, Jeez. because that's their point of reference from academic use. Yeah. You know, it's it can be used once in this class and then you can't use it again unless you get permission again. So as I say, it's changed that whole landscape and I think it's forced a lot of folks to look for texts that are in the public domain or to work with a living poet and and collaborate right away. Mm-hmm the Library of Congress, you can search for texts that are in the public domain. Um, they have a search engine. Um, there are other good search engines out there. But it's that's a big part of the business side of managing the career. One of the big misconceptions is that the Bible is free use. Well, of course, the Bible is in public domain. Anybody can set the Bible. Well, some editions of the bible that's true you oh, know but wow. you know if it's a if, you know if it's like the living word edition which was just written recently and is you know, under copyright you know that is not public domain that's not you know you don't have that use or if a poem well, let's say i don't you know name a 14th century poet or something that would, you know a poem is written in italian but it's been translated into english and is now that translation's under copyright you have to get permission to do that as well.
0: One of your pieces I really liked was Naterno.
1: I don't know if I'm pronouncing it. Oh, that right, yeah, but the cello I, piece.
0: Yeah, that one yeah. got
1: my ear on your website. That's one of the purely instrumental pieces I've very few purely instrumental pieces I've written. The Timothy Dupre is the pianist, asked me to do that. And then Joe Johnson, who at that point was cellist with Minnesota Orchestra, was the cellist. They're both terrific performers. And I was studying the Britain unaccompanied cello suites and um seeing how wonderfully he wrote for cello. So the piece kind of came out of that study and, and those sounds and, and that approach in my head, and then turned into sort of a gentle lullaby, you know, after that, uh this whole nighttime which is a theme that I think in a lot of my music, um, night and even song and dusk images.
0: That does it for my talk with Craig Carnahan. Thanks for tuning in to ComposerQuest again. And if you want to get in touch with me, my email is charlie at composerquest.com. For more of Craig's music, you can visit craigcarnahan.com and his last name is spelled C-A-R-N-A-H-A-N. I also recommend checking out the American Composers Forum site, composersforum.org. If you become a member, you get access to their Composer Opportunities page, which has lots and lots of calls for scores. And if you want to learn more about their Innova recording label, you can go to Innova.mu, and Innova is spelled I-N-N-O-V-A. Stay tuned, because in the next episode, I'm going to announce the next Composing Quest, first one of 2014. If you've been enjoying Composer Quest and want to show your support, I'd appreciate a little review in iTunes. Thanks again for listening! Now I'll leave you with a part of one of Craig's pieces that I really like called A Cradle Song.
2: Stares in the night